Okay, so this semester we are going to do something which is a little bit unusual for RUF, honestly. Uh, my name's Kevin Twitt, by the way, if I didn't get to meet you. I'm the campus minister with RUF, and I've been working with students here at Belmont 16 years, and I still love it. And uh, our typical practice is to go through books of the Bible in order. The reason is because the things that are most important, um, we believe, get more emphasis in the Bible and get repeated. And the best way to figure out like what the Bible's all about and what God is all about is basically not to just sort of jump around and pick and choose all your favorite passages, but instead to go through books of the Bible and let the passages speak to you, even the passages that we don't like very much. There is a, a, a Bible teacher, a guy, he's, he's almost passed away now, but not quite. Um, well, he's old and he's not in good health anymore. But R.C. Sproul is his name. And he, he said one time, and I've always thought this was really interesting. The more I've thought about it and the longer I've lived, the more I think he's right. He said the best way to grow as a Christian, if, you, if you're a Christian and you want to grow, um, the best way to grow as a Christian, he says, is to go through the Bible and underline everything you don't like and meditate on it because either you need to change or God needs to change. Um, often what people do, whether they're conservative, liberal, doesn't matter. They seem to all do this in their same way, and we're all tempted to do this, which is basically just to kind of camp out on the places in the Bible that we like um, and ignore the places that challenge our preconceived ideas. Um, and so in RUF, what we try to do is try to fight against that by going through books of the Bible. But this semester is an exception. It is. Uh, every once in a while, we'll do a, to- a, a series that's a little more topical. This one we're doing this semester is gospel-driven relationships, or as we take uh, to calling it around here, relating, dating, and mating. Uh, and that's going to be our semester, our series. And the reason is... because relationships are central to the Bible. It is appropriate at times to kind of step back and and sort of synthesize what does the Bible have to say about particular topics. That is an appropriate thing to do, and particularly with this topic of relationships, because the issue of relationships is not just peripheral to what the Bible is concerned about. It actually is central to the Bible. The idea the Bible... uh, unlike the way a lot of people and a lot of churches think of it, the Bible is not a book of rules. The Bible is not just a book of rules. It's a book about a love story that's gone tragically wrong, and yet God has refused to give up. And his dogged perseverance makes the story come true in the most beautiful way. That's what the Bible's about. It's about how God created human beings to be in rich relationship with him and with each other. And God is still committed to that goal. And it's everywhere in the Bible. And we're going to actually start at the beginning here tonight. We're going to look at Genesis, the first three chapters, and see what we can learn about this issue of relationships. So we're doing it this semester because it's a central issue in the Bible, but also because it's an issue where there's so much confusion in our world. And, you know, when you come to this issue of relationships... What the Bible offers us is wisdom that has been tried and tested for thousands and thousands of years across hundreds of cultures. And furthermore, it's God's word. Christians believe that God made us, but he also spoke 
He doesn't leave us just sort of groping in the dark, trying to figure out why am I here? How am I supposed to live? He graciously tells us. And so we want to understand what has the one who made us told us about how he made us to be, right? And so what does the Bible say about relationships? Well, in a nutshell, it's this. You were made for them, but things have went terribly wrong. Nevertheless, God is still committed to healing and perseverance and ultimately marrying himself to you. As a matter of fact, the Bible goes so far as to say, and it says this in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament in chapter 5, that God created marriage to teach you about his love. Even that very idea turns upside down a lot of people's idea of relationships. What does it mean that God created marriage as a signpost, as a way of even understanding what his love is like. And yet at the same time, the Bible speaks about singleness as a calling that is a legitimate countercultural way to live in our world. The Bible is full of surprising things when it comes to this issue of relationships. But tonight we're going to start at the beginning with the idea of relationships um, that you were made for and why it's impossible to actually pursue them the way you might want. All right? So let's look at the scripture. Like I said, it's on the back of your announcement sheet. I won't read all of it now. Some of it I I won't even read, but we'll reference because there's a lot of passages. One of the challenges when you look into the Old Testament is there's so much to read sometimes that it's hard to get through it all. But we're going to read chapter 2, starting at verse 15, and I printed this out for you. This is God's word. The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. But the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, hold on. That's just a backup because I never know. Sometimes the computer recording doesn't work. The Lord God um, said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the air, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. They, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you here speak to us about who we are. We pray, Lord, that we would learn 
from you tonight. And not only that, that our hearts would be warmed as we think about the love that you cast upon um, those who don't deserve it, namely all of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, that you'd help us. Amen. Um, so relationships are what you were made for. Where, where do we see that in the Bible? Well, basically, in this chapter that I just read, there's two, two main points that I want to make about relationships are what we were made for. And the first you see in what God says. And the second you see in what Adam says. Let's look first at what God says. Um, now, we didn't read the whole chapter, but if we read the whole chapter, it's really fascinating how the story puts a particular emphasis on God saying it's not good that the man is alone. Because chapter 2, there's this refrain, God created this and it was good. He created this and it was good. He created the, the animals and it was good. And he created the trees and it was good. And on and on and on, this refrain over and over again, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then all of a sudden, it was not good. It was not good that the man was alone. And what's fascinating about this is that nothing has went wrong God has created things the way they are. Sin, rebellion against God, has not entered into the picture yet. And still God says, it's not good. Now that's remarkable. Now, does that mean that God overlooked something really important? I don't think so. I think what's interesting, when you look at where God goes next with that, it is not good, what does he do for Adam? He has him name all of the various creatures. Now, actually, naming in the Bible is pretty significant. It's not just giving an arbitrary label to something. It really means understanding it. Names in the Bible often signify who you are and what you've done. And so naming in the Bible is, is a significant thing. He wants Adam to look and examine and understand. In a lot of ways, this is the basis for scientific exploration, this naming. And what God is doing is he is bringing Adam to the point where he will know that it's not good that he's alone. God knows that it's not good for him to be alone. But how many times have you learned things merely by being told them? <laughs> how, how many things do you know really well only because somebody told you, not through experience? God wants Adam to come to an experiential knowledge of what God already knows which is that it's not good. Now, as we learn in Ephesians chapter 5, you might get a hint as why God might do it this way. It's because God is wanting to teach Adam and Eve something important about his love through giving them to each other. That there's something even about God's love that needs this experiential experience for them to fully understand it rather than just being told God is love he creates marriage. He creates one who is like the man, but yet gloriously different than the man. For him to come to an experiential understanding that in some way, this image is what it's like to live in God's love. We are made in his image, and yet we're so different than him. And there's something about that that marriage teaches us about. And God wants Adam to come to an experiential knowledge of that. But the first and foremost thing to see here is that it's not good for man to be alone, and that's before sin and selfishness and brokenness enters into the world. What does this teach us? 
Well, I think an important thing it teaches us is that even if you have God in your life, you still need other people. Adam had God to himself, as it were. Now, I don't know if you're, where you're at in your walk or your sort of pilgrimage, if you consider yourself someone who has God in their life or somebody who's maybe interested in finding out how to have God in your life, but Adam has God in his life. We find out later in chapter 3 that it was the regular practice of God to walk with Adam in the cool of the day. And in sort of a Middle Eastern culture, that's a, that's, that's a, a wonderful picture. That in that, that time when you can just have some rest and relaxation, that's where God is. And that's when God wants to be with them and just walk with them and talk with them and enjoy relationship with the man and the woman that he's made. So we know that Adam has God in his life in a rich way, in a wonderful way. And yet God says you need more than that. Now, the reason I want to point that out is because I know a lot of Christian students that don't seem to believe this. I hear people all the time talking about how I have God and that's enough. I don't need any boys. I don't need any girls. I don't need any friends. I just, if I have God, then I have enough. Or even I find students that are sort of tortured with the idea that even though they want other people, they really shouldn't because if they were really a good Christian and they had God and they really loved God, then they wouldn't need anybody else. Have you ever heard that kind of stuff? I call that super spiritual. It's like more spiritual than God. And that's a problem. Now, you might think that a weird thing to say, but actually that problem creeps up in the Bible quite a lot, and the Bible speaks about it at times. Um, there's a place in Colossians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul says that there are these people that think that, you know, Christianity is all about do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, and imposing harsh rules uh, that sort of, break, sort of keep down the body and any kind of desires um, and, and, and Paul says that those things are terrible. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul goes so far as to teach that it's a doctrine of demons, he says, to teach people to abstain from marriage. And yet I know a lot of Christians that seem to give the idea that if you really, really, really loved God, you wouldn't need anybody else. But you'd be perpetually single and content with God alone. Now we are going to have a week where we're going to talk about singleness and how the Bible can talk about singleness as a valid calling of God. But there's definitely large swaths of Christianity and even of Christian churches that have this official teaching that the most spiritual people should be content with God alone. And that's not true. And the Bible is against that from the very beginning. Okay? So that's, that's, that's important. So that's kind of the super spiritual version. But then I think in our day and age, it's important for us, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, to understand that what the Bible says you were made for is not just God, but other people too. And yet, for various reasons, a lot of people don't like that. There's sort of the super spiritual version, but then I would say there's also kind of the hardened cynical version, which is why would I want to have relationships? Relationships just bring pain. They bring vulnerability, at least, and I don't want that in my life. I've had enough of that, thank you, and I don't mean to minimize that at all. There are probably people in this room who've suffered grievously, and probably the deepest hurts that you've had in your life have been with, re with regard to relationships, right? We don't want to make light of that or minimize that. 
And yet the truth still remains that God says you were made for relationship. Now, I, you know, I wasn't married till I was 33. So I, I lived a long time trying to believe that I didn't really need other people, at least not in, a, in an intimate kind of way. And, you know, I bought thousands of books and hundreds of CDs and lots of guitars. And, you know, I had fun. I, I tell people I think I had some like 26 roommates between the time I graduated college and before I finally got married. You know? And some of them were good, some of them weren't. But a lot of loneliness that I was masking by busyness. I've been there. I I love this uh, song. I don't know if you guys know Simon and Garfunkel's music at all. Um, But there's that song. um, It's actually really a Paul Simon song. Even though I noticed today on iTunes it's under Simon and Garfunkel. There's a funny story about how it came about. But it really is a Paul Simon song. Um, that after he recorded it and left, then they added a bunch of stuff to it, and lo and behold, it came out and it was a hit. Um, but he, he, he's, he's got this, um, this, um, this song, I Am a Rock, I Am an Island, you've heard this, which is sort of an in-your-face in your to this John Donne uh, poem where he talks about how no man is an island. But Simon writes this, If I never would have loved, I never would have cried. I am a rock. I am an island. I have my books and my poetry to protect me, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one, and no one touches me. I am a rock. I am an island. I I love how great songs in just a few lines can capture that. And what I, what I really like about this song is at the very end, all the production stops. It just goes back down to one acoustic guitar and one voice in these lines. A rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. But you go listen to that record, and you understand that, of course, he's not really a rock, and he's not really an island, because you can hear the pain in his voice. And there's a lot of people, it's so tragic to think about um, how many people are trying to live that way. Now, contrast that song, which, you know, in some ways, like Paul Simon, that's not even the way he lived then, and it's not the way he lives now. But I think it expresses what seems to a lot of people, yeah, there seems to be some wisdom to that song. You know, maybe my life would be better if I was more self-sufficient and I didn't really need other people. But um, C.S. Lewis, the great uh, Christian thinker, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and a lot of other things, had, has a great quote where he kind of talks about this thing. And this is one of those quotes that just has always slayed me. He says this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it, your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place 
outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Now, I don't know where you're at tonight, but I know there have been times in my life where honestly, I would choose hell over the dangers of love. And I think one of the great tragedies with regard to relationships is not that we don't know that at some level we need them, but we try to satisfy ourselves with the bare minimum to take the edge off our loneliness without really embracing the rich community and relationships that God made us for. And so, you know, I mean, my my wife will tell you, when I, I read that quote, it's like, that's still kind of what I do. I still have to fight against this. I still am so often content to just have enough relationship so that I feel like I'm not lonely. But I'm not really pursuing intimacy. I'm not pursuing the kind of relationship with God or with others that he made me for. And I try to convince myself that it's okay that I have enough. Well, how about you? How about you? Well, we also see something really cool in the words of Adam. I love that when Adam sees the woman, he breaks out into poetry. You don't see that because I had to squeeze it onto your page. But if you look at any translation, it'll, it'll bracket it off and you'll see this is poetry. It's the only example we have of human speech before sin enters the world and it's poetry. The great hymn writer William Cooper who wrote, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood and God Moves in Mysterious Ways, some other um, really great hymns. He had this idea that originally everything we spoke was poetic. And that when you use poetry, you actually are connecting with people at a deep, intuitive level because we were made to speak beautiful words, artful words to one another. I don't know. I love to think about that idea. I don't have any evidence against it, so I prefer to think that maybe he's right. Of course, he could write verse without even thinking about it. So maybe, you know, if I could write verse like that, then maybe I would think that that's what we were made for. Um, that, the point aside, Adam says, and now the Hebrew misses the, the, the Hebrew is stronger here than the English translations. But literally in the Hebrew, the first thing he says is, wow. It, it has this little word that means like, whoa, look at this. Wow. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. What he's saying is, she's like me. And you understand, like God has helped him get experientially acquainted with the ache in his soul. Every other creature seems to have one like them, but not me. And then God sort of makes him hungry and then gives him the woman. Now, girls, don't be offended by this word helper. I know a lot of people think of that as a demeaning word, and it's actually not at all. Almost, that word is almost used exclusively in the Hebrew Bible for God himself. God is the one who's regularly regarded as Israel's helper. It's not a demeaning word. It's not a second-class citizen kind of word at all. It's a remarkable thing, actually, uh, considering the way many cultures regarded women, that the Bible uses that word, a word that's tenderly reserved for God himself. But he sees this woman, he says, this is what I 
was made for. Now, here's what's interesting. I think a lot of Christians, whether they realize it or not, have no, no idea how to, how to embrace that kind of passion and excitement. In other words, when you think of Christianity, do you think that, that Christianity is all about romance and being thrilled with seeing a naked woman? Because that's what's going on here. That's what's going on here, right? It says it. If you missed it, it says it at the end of the chapter. They were naked, just in case you didn't notice, right? And, and so there's something here that for a lot of Christians, it makes them a little uncomfortable, right? And I'm not going to go all Mark Driscoll on you. You know, I don't know if you heard about the controversy of his latest book. That's, don't worry. Um, I, but there's something really important here. Christianity is life-embracing. And Christianity embraces the very best things of life. It should. Now, for a lot of people, they've basically been made to think that Christianity, that the best Christians are the ones who walk around with a sour look on their face and don't really enjoy anything. Um, you guys probably aren't really old enough to remember Dana Carvey's church lady thing on Saturday Night Live, are you? But you could YouTube some of that. And Oh, they did? Oh, yeah, he hosted, and, he, and they brought it back. Yeah, with Justin Bieber. Oh, yeah, that was awesome. Um, we saw that, that one, didn't we? So the church lady was sort of like the stereotypical, you know, she's like anything that you like, she's like offended and it's a problem. And so many people think of that as Christianity. So I just wanted to point that out, that what we have here is that we were made for this, and we know this because um, Adam testifies to this is what I was made for. There's something here that he resonates with. But here's the thing. Like, I think you need to remember that it's important you understand that you're made for a relationship with God and with others, right? And I think, you know, Tim Keller, who's the pastor up in New York City, has a brand new book called The Meaning of Marriage, uh, which, is, which is a really good book. And uh, if you want to go farther into some of these topics, that would be a good one to read this semester. But he talks in there about, unfortunately, what's interesting in our day and age is we've bought into this idea of the soulmate who's going to so perfectly fulfill your every desire and every relational longing that you will instantly be sexually attracted and have this chemistry, and then at the same time, there won't be anything about this person that you would ever want to change. And we're all looking for this. And he says, it's fascinating, like never before in history have there been so many people with such an idealistic view of marriage to the point where people aren't getting married anymore. In other words, it's important for you to understand that you were made not just for God, but for relationship with others. But it's also important you understand that no person can give you everything. If you try to make relationship with another person bear all of the weight of what you were made for relationally, it will break. So you're kind of stuck in this dilemma, like you need relationship with God and with others to fully understand and experience all of what it means to be human. That's the Bible's contention. That's the gauntlet that's being laid down here. And you can't, you can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. And yet, even with this beautiful design, it's not where we live today. Because sin has made a mess of things. And that's where we get into in the very next chapter. And you know the story, right? 
Um, Adam and Eve are tempted. They turn away from God. They know that they're sinners, that they've, you know, you, you, people use that word and they're like, oh, there's those Christians go again talking about sinners. Here's what you need to understand. What the Bible means by the word sin is not merely a breaking of the rules. It means there's been a rupture in relationship. You've got to understand, God made human beings to, to love, to relate to them. He didn't make them because he was lonely. He had perfect love within the Trinity already. But he made them, nonetheless, to love them. And when Adam and Eve turned away from him, it broke his heart. I I love to listen to classic rock. And you can't listen to it for more than 10 or 15 minutes without hearing over and over and over again about the pain of unrequited love. Right? And I know, you know, the poets may debate whether it's better to have never loved or to have loved and lost, right? But for God, it wasn't an option. Because God is love. And God has known what it's like to experience betrayal and love gone bad, right? And yet, and yet, that's not the end of the story. I always tell people, the fact that the Bible goes on after Genesis chapter 3 is something you should never take for granted. And should give you great hope. Because the Bible should have ended right there. God created them. They turned away from him. And yet, he still comes after him. Now, look, here what's, here's what's interesting. So a couple things about how sin has messed up relationships. And, and here's the, the important point for you to understand. When God comes to them, he says, where are you? And, 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 and then they say, well, we were hiding. Why were you hiding? Well, because we're naked. Who told you that you were naked? Right? He got, kind of go through the whole little speech. And one of the really interesting things that gets said is, um, you know, um, it's this whole thing. What verse is it here? Oh, yeah. What have you done? Look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Um, the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Right? But look what happened before that, verse 12. The man said, the woman you put here with me deceived me. Now, that's a, that's a really ver, important verse there in verse 12. What it means is, even from the very beginning, they've sinned against God, but they're not a united front against God for long. Very quickly, the break in the relationship with God has spilled over into a break in the relationship between the man and the woman, which is the Bible's way of saying that the way you relate to God is always connected to the way you relate to other people. Your relationships with other people are always connected to your relationship with God. Now, we're going to explore that uh, a lot this semester, but you see it even here. They're blaming God, but they're also blaming each other, right? The woman you put here, God, he's, he's quick, to, you know, Adam's quick to give her up, <laughs> She did it, but really, God, you did it. Do you see that? The brokenness in the relationship with God spills over into the relationships with others. And then notice what God tells the woman about the effect of this brokenness and this relationship rupture. He says to the woman that your desire will be for your husband and it, or he, because the Hebrew here could be translated either way, will rule over you. Now, you know, Bible scholars debate this verse a lot. What does it mean here? Does it mean that the woman 
will have an over-desire for her husband, an over-dependence on the husband that will make her vulnerable and dominated. And there's lots of evidence in the history of the world that that exactly has happened in many ways. Or does it mean that her desire will be to rule her husband? And I would tell you, actually, I think the, the Hebrew is deliberately ambiguous because both are true. Uh, in the, the Hebrew, the third person singular can be um, he or it. So what's going to rule, the desire or the husband? And the fact is, both go on. In other words, what you have now after the fall, rather than the two of them loving each other and working to bring glory to God and to bring out all of the God-glorifying potential of his creation, now they're fighting for control. Sometimes giving up control in an inappropriate way, sometimes taking control in an inappropriate way. And you see this dynamic in every relationship since then. That's what's going on, right? But the good news, the good news is that God comes to them and seeks them. And look what happens here. Um, It doesn't take long for Adam and Eve to see how broken everything is. Look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. I stuck this on the end because it's an important part. You know, the the biblical text doesn't really have chapter markings. Those were put in later by editors. And sometimes they cut off parts of the story from other parts of the story. And I thought, I love this verse. Um, It says that Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said... With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Again, in the Hebrew, it says the man. It's the definite article. And then later, she gives birth to his brother, Abel. Now, what's the significance here? Here's what's interesting. God comes, and even in giving the curse and saying, here's how sin has wrecked everything, he gives them this promise that he is going to make things right, that he's going to send one who would crush the head of the serpent, right? And what's interesting is Adam shows that he believes that promise. How? Because he names Eve, Eve. Not just woman. Now she gets the name Eve, which is uh, translated or is uh, understood to be the mother of all living. In other words, he believes that there's a future because God has promised a future. But then you go on and you see that they name this first boy, Cain, but notice what Eve says when she sees him. She says, lo, I think the King James puts it that way, lo, because again, it's that Hebrew word that means, look, wow, the Lord has given me the man. What is she talking about? She thinks that the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent has been born. She believes the promise, and now she thinks that God has given her the man. But she names her second boy Abel, which is the Hebrew word hevel. Do you know what hevel means? It's that word that's translated vanity, vanity, all is vanity in Ecclesiastes. It's a word that means vapor or breath. It's probably best translated frustration. When her first boy is born, she says, here's the man. All things are going to be made right. By the time she has her second boy, she names him frustration. And the reality that even though God has made this promise, that she believes the reality that life is frustrating has sunk in. And yet still, God 
perseveres. He still perseveres. And we see this good news that even though you might be ready to throw away relationships and say, I've had it, I'm done, God is not given up. Right? He pursues Adam and Eve. I love this in chapter uh, 3, verse 21. He, he clothes them. They know they're naked. They try to clothe themselves. You know, they clothe themselves with these, with these leaves, right? And generally people talk about fig leaves. It's, the, it's a leaf of a plant um, that grows in the Middle East. It's huge. The fig leaf is, is huge. The problem with it is it has huge holes. It's a, it's a beautiful picture for what's going on here. The kinds of things that we try to clothe ourselves with to hide our nakedness are always full of holes, which just makes us redouble our effort to try and hide even more. But what does God do? He meets them at that place of shame and he gives them clothing. And somebody had to die for them to be clothed. Don't miss that point. It's a foreshadowing of a very important theme in the Bible, that blood must be shed if you're going to be clothed. But not only that, you see, God places this um, angel with a flaming sword to guard Adam and Eve getting back to the tree of life. And you say, well, that sounds crazy. Why is that? It's because God is not going to let them live forever in a state of estrangement from him. And because what he's showing even there is that someone's going to have to go under the sword to get back to the garden. And of course, the Bible unfolds that story and talks about Jesus coming, God's only son, to take that punishment. So you see, God is so committed to relationships and to relationship with you that he sends his only begotten son to deal with everything that would make you afraid or ashamed to relate to him or to others. Now again, I'm just, you know, starting to talk about this stuff, and we're going to talk about this a lot more. We're going to talk especially about this idea, what is the gospel that drives relationships? Even the idea that the gospel is not just something that you hear about and then you say, yes, I agree to it, but it's actually something that can be a motivation and a power in your life. We're going to talk about next week. Um, So I'm going to, I'm going to, halt here. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to see if, I'm going to give like five minutes if there's any questions or clarifications um, about anything I've said tonight because I'm going to start doing that here at RUF.